The French Revolution, A History, by Thomas Carlyle, Volume 3, The Guillotine, Book 2, Regicide, Chapter 7, The Three Votings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Peter Dan. Book 2, Chapter 7, The Three Votings. Is Louis Capet guilty of conspiring against liberty? Shall our sentence be itself final, or need ratifying by appeal to the people? If guilty, what punishment? This is the form agreed to. After uproar and several hours of tumultuous indecision, these are the three successive questions whereon the Convention shall now pronounce. Paris floods round their hall, multitudinous, many-sounding. Europe and all nations listen for their answer. Deputy after deputy shall answer to his name, guilty or not guilty. As to the guilt, there is, as above hinted, no doubt in the mind of patriot man. Overwhelming majority pronounces guilt. The unanimous convention votes for guilt. Only some feeble twenty-eight voting not innocence, but refusing to vote at all. Neither does the second question prove doubtful, whatever the Girondins might calculate. Would not appeal to the people be another name for civil war? Majority of two to one answers that there shall be no appeal. This also is settled. Loud patriotism, now at ten o'clock, may hush itself for the night and retire to its bed, not without hope. Tuesday has gone well. On the morrow comes what punishment? On the morrow is the tug of war. Consider, therefore, if on this Wednesday morning there is an affluence of patriotism, if Paris stands a tiptoe and all deputies are at their post. 749 honourable deputies, only some 20 absent on mission, Duchatel and some seven others absent by sickness. Meanwhile, expectant patriotism and Paris, standing a tiptoe, have need of patience. For this Wednesday again passes in debate and effervescence, Girondins proposing that a majority of three-fourths shall be required, patriots fiercely resisting them. Danton, who has just got back from mission in the Netherlands, does obtain order of the day on this Girondin proposal. Nay, he obtains further that we decide san disimpare in permanent session till we have done. And so, finally, at eight in the evening, this third stupendous voting by roll-call or appel nominal does begin. What punishment? Girondins, undecided, patriots decided, men afraid of royalty, men afraid of anarchy, must answer here and now. Infinite patriotism, dusky in the damp light, floods all corridors, crowds all galleries, sternly waiting to hear. Shrill-sounding ushers summon you by name and department. You must rise to the tribune and say. Eyewitnesses have represented this scene of the third voting, and of the votings that grew out of it, a scene protracted, like to be endless, lasting with few brief intervals from Wednesday till Sunday morning, as one of the strangest scene in the revolution. Long night wears itself into day, morning's paleness is spread over all faces, and again the wintry shadows sink and the dim lamps are lit, but through day and night and the vicissitude of hours, member after member is mounting continually those tribune steps, pausing aloft there in the clearest upper light to speak his fate word, then diving down into the dusk and throng again. 
like phantoms in the hour of midnight, most spectral, pandemonial. Never did President Vernio or any terrestrial president superintend the like. A king's life, and so much else that depends thereon, hangs trembling in the balance. Man after man mounts, the buzz hushes itself till he have spoken. Death, banishment, imprisonment till the peace. Many say death, with what cautious, well-studied phrases and paragraphs they could devise of explanation, of enforcement, of faint recommendation to mercy. Many too say banishment, something short of death. The balance trembles, none can yet guess whitherward. Whereat anxious patriotism bellows, irrepressible by ushers. The poor Girondins, many of them under such fierce bellowing of patriotism, say death, justifying motivant that most miserable word of theirs by some brief casuistry and jesuitry. Vernio himself says death, justifying by jesuitry. Rich Le Pelletier Saint-Fargo had been of the noblesse and then of the patriot left side in the constituent and had argued and reported there and elsewhere not a little against capital punishment. Nevertheless, he now says death, a word which may cost him dear. Manuel did surely rank with the decided in August last, but he has been sinking and backsliding ever since September and the scenes of September. In this convention, above all, no word he could speak would find favour. He says now banishment, and in mute wrath quits the place forever, much hustled in the corridors. Philippe Egalité votes in his soul and conscience death, at the sound of which and of whom even patriotism shakes its head, and there runs a groan and shudder through this hall of doom. Robespierre's vote cannot be doubtful. His speech is long. Men see the figure of Shrilsier ascend, hardly pausing, passing merely. This figure says, La mort sans phrase, death without phrases and fares onward and downward, most spectral, pandemonial. And yet if the reader fancy it of a funereal, sorrowful, or even grave character, he is far mistaken. The ushers in the mountain quarter, says Mercier, had become as box openers at the opera, opening and shutting of galleries for privileged persons, for d'Orléans, Egalités, mistresses, or other high-dizened women of condition, rustling with laces and tricolor, gallant deputies pass and repass thitherward, treating them with ices, refreshments and small talk. The high dizzened heads beck responsive. Some have their card and pin, pricking down the eyes and nose as at a game of rouge et noir. Further aloft reigns Mère Duchesse with her unrouged Amazons. She cannot be prevented making long ha-ha's when the vote is not la mort. In these galleries there is refection, drinking of wine and brandy, as in open tavern, on plain tabagi. Betting goes on in all coffee-houses of the neighbourhood, but within doors, fatigue, impatience, uttermost weariness sits now on all visages, lighted up only from time to time by turns of the game. Members have fallen asleep, ushers come and awaken them to vote, other members calculate whether they shall not have time to run and dine. Figures rise like phantoms, pale in the dusky lamplight, utter from this tribune only one word, death. Tout est optique, says Monsieur. the world is all an optical shadow. 
Deep in the Thursday night, when the voting is done and secretaries are summing it up, Sic du Châtel, more spectral than another, comes borne on a chair, wrapped in blankets, in nightgown and nightcap, to vote for mercy. One vote, it is thought, may turn the scale. Ah, no. In profoundest silence, President Vernier, with a voice full of sorrow, has to say, I declare in the name of the Convention that the punishment it pronounces on Louis Capet is that of death. Death by a small majority of 53. Nay, if we deduct from the one side and add to the other a certain 26 who said death but coupled some faintest ineffectual surmise of mercy with it, the majority will be but one. Death is the sentence, but its execution? It is not executed yet. Scarcely is the vote declared when Louis's three advocates enter, with protest in his name, with demand for delay, for appeal to the people. For this do Desais and Tranchet plead with brief eloquence. Brave old Malicheur pleads for it with eloquent want of eloquence, in broken sentences, in embarrassment and sobs. That brave, time-honoured face with its grey strength, its broad sagacity and honesty, is mastered with emotion melts into dumb tears. They reject the appeal to the people, that having been already settled. But as to the delay, what they call sursi, it shall be considered, shall be voted for tomorrow. At present we adjourn. Whereupon patriotism hisses from the mountain, but a tyrannical majority has so decided, and adjourns. There is still this fourth vote, then, growls indignant patriotism, this vote and who knows what other votes and adjournments of voting, and the whole matter still hovering hypothetical. And at every new vote, those Jesuit Girondins, even they who voted for death, would so fain find a loophole. Patriotism must watch and rage. Tyrannical adjournments there have been, one and now another at midnight on plea of fatigue, all Friday wasted in hesitation and higgling, in recounting of the votes which are found correct as they stood. Patriotism bays fiercer than ever. Patriotism by long watching has become red-eyed, almost rabid. Delay? Yes or no? Men do vote it finally, all Saturday, all day and night. Men's nerves are worn out. Men's hearts are desperate, now it shall end. Vernier, spite of the baying, ventures to say yes, delay, though he had voted death. Philippe Egalité says in his soul and conscience, no. The next member mounting, since Philippe says no, I for my part say yes, moi je dis oui. The balance still trembles, till finally at three o'clock on Sunday morning we have no delay by a majority of seventy. Death within four and twenty hours. Gara, Minister of Justice, has to go to the temple with this stern message. He ejaculates repeatedly, Quelle commission affreuse! What a frightful function! Louis begs for a confessor for yet three days of life to prepare himself to die. The confessor is granted. The three days and all respite are refused. There is no deliverance then? Thick stone walls answer none. Has King Louis no friends, men of action, of courage, grown desperate in this his extreme need? King Louis's friends are feeble and far. Not even a voice in the coffee-houses rises for him. 
At Mayo the restaurateurs, no Captain Damp Martin now dines, or sees death-doing whiskerandos on furlough exhibit daggers of improved structure. Mayo's gallant royalists on furlough are far across the marches. They are wandering distracted over the world, or their bones lie whitening argon wood. Only some weak priests leave pamphlets on all the bornstones this night, calling for a rescue, calling for the pious women to rise, or are taken distributing pamphlets and sent to prison. Nay, there is one death-doer of the ancient Mayo sort, who with effort has done even less and worse, slain a deputy and set all the patriotism of Paris on edge. It was five on Saturday evening when Le Pelletier Saint-Fageau, having given his vote, no delay, ran over to Fevrier's in the Palais Royal to snatch a morsel of dinner. He had dined and was paying. A thick-set man with black hair and a blue beard in a loose kind of frock stepped up to him. It was, as Fevrier and the bystanders bethought them, one Paris of the old king's guard. Are you Pelletier? asks he. Yes. You voted in the king's business? I voted death. Scalera, take that, cries Paris, flashing out a sabre from under his frock and plunging it deep in Le Pelletier's side. Ferrier clutches him, but he breaks off, is gone. The voter Le Pelletier lies dead. He has expired in great pain at one in the morning, two hours before that vote of no delay was fully summed up. Guardsman Paris is flying over France, cannot be taken will be found some months after, self-shot in a remote inn. Robespierre sees reason to think that Prince d'Artois himself is privately in town, that the convention will be butchered in the lump. Patriotism, sound mere wail and vengeance, Santerre doubles and trebles all his patrols. Pity is lost in rage and fear. The convention has refused the three days of life and all respite. End of Book Two Chapter 7